Good morning. The conflict in the Middle East dominated across all news programmes this week as tensions in the region escalated. While Israelis mourn their dead and await the fate of the hostages taken by Hamas three weeks ago, the people of Gaza suffer unrelenting bombing and devastation. On Wednesday's News at One, Paul Cunningham spoke to Irishman Tom Hand, whose eight-year-old daughter Emily was killed in the Hamas attack of October 7th. She was a... I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but a beautiful, angelic, innocent girl. Um, she loved she loved life, dancing, singing. Uh, for her age, she was only eight. She had a very uh, intelligent humour. She, she would always make uh, everyone around her laugh. Emily had been at a sleepover in her friend's house. And Tom Hand spoke about how he learned of the fate of his daughter. The mother of uh, the friend um, sent texts. They're in the house. They're, they're breaking in. Uh, they're kidnapping me. So uh, you presume the worst, uh, either either death or kidnapped. And how did you find out? That it actually been your daughter had been killed. Uh, three days later, somebody came and said, uh, "You know they've got hundreds to tell, so it's got to be as quick as possible and as um, courteous as possible." Uh, they said, uh, "We found your daughter. She's been found in the kibbutz, and she's been found dead." And. Uh, I said, thank God, thank God. Um, it was the better option of uh, either being killed or kidnapped, and I'll take killed any day of the week. People will have seen that interview on CNN just a few days after you had been told, yeah. and I guess people, maybe parents, just wouldn't be able to understand what you were feeling that you could say just what you said now. It's, 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 it's in a normal world, it's, 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 it's ridiculous, it's crazy, it's unfathomable. Um, but that was how I felt, honestly. And he would go on to learn of the death of the mother of his other two children. It's a continuing grief. Um, uh, it was only a week later, after the it was Saturday to Saturday exactly, that they then came and told me and my other two kids that they found uh, their mother, uh, Nakis, uh, also dead in the kibbutz. Um, so yeah, even a week later we're still finding bodies. And now two weeks later we're still finding bodies. So we don't know how many people have actually been kidnapped and taken hostage to, to Gaza. Um, Hopefully, they will be released at some point. They must release them. The, the world has to ask the Hamas to release our civilians, kids, babies, literally kids, babies, elderly, infirmed, civilians. That's not war. That's not war. Tom Hand speaking to Paul Cunningham on the News at One.
and in Gaza, over a million people displaced and thousands killed by bombings, including children. Al-Shifa is the biggest hospital in the Gaza Strip and it is rapidly running out of space and fuel. On Drive Time, Cormac spoke to surgeon Professor Ghassan Abusita. Can you tell me about the amount of wounded and bodies that you received in about 24 hours? Because I, I heard you say 600 dead into the hospital in, in, in a day. Is that correct? Yes. So the day before, there were 600 dead in the system and everything is running short, including the fuel for the generator. The hospital is overwhelmed. The staff are overwhelmed. A lot of them have lost members of their family or we've lost members of staff. We've lost a, a colleague, plastic surgeon. Last night, in the early hours of the night, one of our operating room staff, staff are completely exhausted, just like the supplies. I mean, for the last hour, the building shaking with intense bombing. Did you say that you're, you have patients who have lost whole families? Yes, there are lots of children who are the sole survivors of their entire families. My colleagues in other specialties tell me that they have the same whole families that are being wiped out when the building is being flattened. The day before, I had a 12-year-old told me that her mother and father had been killed. The day before that, I had a couple of children. Today, another boy whose parents were killed. Um, it's just, and this is in a 17-day period. I mean, that's the killing machine that is being unleashed on the Palestinians in Gaza. That's the rate of slaughter that's happening. Can you treat them then without adequate fuel or water or supplies, medical supplies? Compromising and doing what you can with the little that you have. Uh, and that triage becomes more and more difficult as your resources dwindle. It'll all stop if the fuel for the generators stop and there's no electricity in the hospital. This hospital might as well be a mass grave because the 150 on ventilators, the patients who need urgently need to be taken to the operating room can't go. The ventilators won't run. And so, the, you know, the, the system is within days of collapsing. And as conditions within Gaza continue to deteriorate, with Colm Mungon, this view from Channel 4's Lindsay Hilsom. You've got two things going on. You've got the relentless bombing and everybody has seen on television the terrifying pictures of apartment blocks that have been destroyed and children and just other civilians being crushed underneath. So that's the first thing. But then also what the UN Relief and Works Agency, the, the UN agency which operates in Gaza, is saying is that as long as they have no fuel, then water can't be pumped and also the bakeries can't keep going. But Israel is absolutely obdurate on this. And what it says is that um, Hamas are hoarding fuel and they're not going to let any fuel go in because Hamas will take the fuel which they will use for rockets. And so this at the moment is an ampas. But what we can say is it is an absolute disaster in Gaza. We're talking about more than 6,000 people killed, the majority of them civilians, and they, it just the bombing doesn't stop. And although some humanitarian aid is getting in, very little. And the uh, Anwar is saying that they're getting to the point where they are having to really uh, reduce the services they can offer and maybe even having to stop them. And also a large number of hospitals have now ceased to function. And we're hearing about hospitals which are using vinegar and washing up liquid because they have nothing else with which to clean wounds and so on. So it's a very desperate situation in Gaza. I have to say it's a desperate situation where people, he which people here 
on the whole, don't want to hear about because this is an appalling conflict where neither side is prepared to accept the humanity of the other. The humanity of the other there, those words just breaking up at the end of that piece by Lindsay Hilsom, Channel 4 News Editor, where we spoke to her earlier. And this week saw EU leaders divided in their response to this conflict, united in their condemnation of Hamas, but struggling to find common ground in their response to Israeli retaliation. After over five hours of talks at the Brussels summit, a call for humanitarian corridors and pauses to allow aid to get into Gaza, but falling short of calling for a ceasefire. Just after five on Thursday, Dana Ehrlich, Israel's ambassador to Ireland, spoke to Sarah on drive time. And at the start of the interview, agreement that Hamas was using its people as human shields. However, Sarah put this to the ambassador. Yes, you're right. Uh, Ambassador, it's a yes, very cynical situation. Really, yes, it, it is. And in the middle of it is, is 2.3 million civilians who are starving. And Israel has the power to give them the food and the fuel and the water that they need. And you have chosen not are, to. I think we're all in agreement that the situation in Gaza is horrible. And this is why we are supplying water. This is why every day trucks go into Gaza because we are worried about the situation. Also, every day we have discussions with the different UN organizations to monitor the humanitarian situation in Gaza. It is not unlike the Hamas. It is not something that we take lightly. We take it very seriously, the lives of these people, obviously. But uh, we've seen time and time again that Hamas abuses anything that we give them. If we give them fuel, us as Israel, if we give our enemy fuel, they will abuse it. And that's why we need the help of the international community. I'm just not sure that that we can accept, though, that Israel takes seriously the lives of Palestinian civilians. Um, As Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General, has said, protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the south, where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the south itself. The World Health Organization, you're talking about the aid agencies, the World Health Organization has documented 171 attacks on healthcare in the occupied Palestinian territory since October 7th, with 493 people having been killed in those health attacks. How is that protecting civilians? What we are doing right now in Gaza is trying to eliminate the military operation of Hamas. Unfortunately, Hamas is embedded so much in the community, and this is why we ask the community to evacuate, which is under international law. The same way that we in Israel evacuated our people from the north and the south under international law during a combat, mm. active and, combat And where did zone, they go? We ask where, people did, where did those Israeli Israel, people go? Mm. They go to the center of Israel. Again, not knowing which Is there food and home. water and shelter in the center of Israel? Yes, because the government of Israel and the state of Israel took care of that. Why didn't Hamas take care of that of its own people? Why are the you Hamas, believing, Ham, for example, But again, Ambassador, you're asking why the organisation that you says is a terrorist organisation that uses its own people as shields, why it's not taking care of those people. You've answered your own question. Israeli Ambassador to Ireland, Dana Ehrlich, on Thursday's drive time. Back in a bit. Welcome back. For a whole generation, he is Captain Picard of the Starship Enterprise. And actor Patrick Stewart's new memoir is called Making It So, appropriately enough. 
although it was, it turned out, far from certain that he would in fact get that role. More in a bit. But first, that voice. She'd clip him for that alone. But it turns out he didn't grow up speaking proper. Do you still have a Yorkshire accent at times? If you have a drink or that, do you revert? If you're angry, do you revert to a, a Yorkshire accent? Uh, yes, sometimes I do. Um, if I'm on the phone talking to any of my family or any of my friends in the north of England, when I get off the phone, my wife will often say, I know what you've been doing. You've been talking to your friends in Yorkshire, haven't you? And it's true. But I spoke not just with an accent. I spoke dialect, which means that the words we used were also different. Shall I give you a very quick example? Oh, oh yes, please. It doesn't need to be quick. All right. When I would go to a, a neighbor's house uh, to see a friend, when he answered the door, I would say to him, Atalikanat. Go again. <laughs> Atta, Lakin, ah. Okay, I'll translate it for you. Atta, art thou. In my family, we said thee and thou, not because we were a religious family, but it was a term that we used. But if I said thee to my father, I would get clouted. Atta, art thou. Lakin, playing. Lakin is a, at least as early as a 16th century word, which in England meant players. So actors were known as Lakers. Um, are you playing at, out? So in other words, what I was saying to him was, at a lake and out, yeah. are you coming out to play? Listen, Sir Patrick, it's even more of America now that you've become what you are because I now realise you grew up not even speaking what we recognise as English. So it was an extraordinary transformation. Now, Patrick spoke to Brendan about his family. His father he described as a weekend alcoholic who beat his mother. And for him, discovering acting offered an escape and a security. The first time I set foot on a proper stage, it was the stage in the school hall of the secondary modern school that I went to. I was not an academic child at all. But I, I was cast. There was a drama uh, group in my school, and they were, it was almost, well, almost entirely composed of teachers and one or two other townspeople. And then they put on a play which had a role for a 12-year-old boy, which was exactly my age. And the English teacher who was directing it cast me to play the role. And I remember distinctly, whereas most people would have been nervous about walking on a stage, the very first time I walked onto that empty stage, no audience, nobody else with me on the stage alone. I felt safer than I had felt in my life. Not threatened, but most importantly, no longer Patrick Stewart. Yeah. I was going to be somebody else. Patrick Stewart ceased to exist because I wasn't especially proud of Patrick and what he could do. Um, so it was a very pleasant and secure experience to be someone else. And he would go on to excel on stage in particular. However, winning over Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry would prove really tricky. He didn't actually want you, but everybody else did for the part. <laughs> 
Yes, that is true. I was in Los Angeles um, where I was staying with and also working with a, an English professor, um, David Rhodes, who was a teacher at UCLA. And he um, had invited me one night to assist him in a public lecture he was giving by illustrating his lecture with speeches from, you know, high-quality drama, both classical as well as contemporary. The next morning, I got a call from my agent, my Hollywood agent, whom I had never met and never <laughs> called, because, I, you know, we'd never had anything to say to one another. And, and um, he called me up one morning quite early and said, all right, Patrick, I've got two questions for you. What were you doing at UCLA last night? And why would Gene Roddenberry want to see you in an hour's time this morning? And I said that I had no idea. And who was Gene Roddenberry? I thought she was some producer <laughs> or something. I went to the meeting, and uh, indeed, it was at uh, being held in Gene Roddenberry's house. And that was when he opened the door and uh, let me in. And there were two other producers in there as well. But I had an uncomfortable feeling, and Gene didn't speak to me at all, but the other two producers did. And then Gene said, after about seven or eight minutes, okay, that's it, all right, you know, uh, thanks a lot, thanks for coming in, and said goodbye to me. I was done, and I thought, what a weird experience that was. Dear listener, he got the gig. But did Roddenberry soften over time? He did not. But he used to come on the set sometimes when we were filming, and he would sit in a director's chair, you know, one of the higher chairs, and I would suddenly catch his eye, and he'd be looking at me with a frown on his face, as if to say, what the hell are you doing in my show? Patrick Stewart with Brendan. With John, more stars this time, Andy McCluskey of OMD, that's Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, kids, and making gentle nostalgic tunes... No, not for them. The title of their new album is Ballhouse Staircase. I've always been interested in, in art and particularly applied art. So obviously architecture is an applied art. Um, the Bauhaus School, for those who don't know, was in Germany between 1919 and 1933. And it was closed by the Nazis because, um, you know, single party totalitarian regimes don't like art. They're scared of it. They don't understand it. And it can challenge them. This is not a history lesson. It's really about it's 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 the the song is about the power of art, which because we we all realised when it was taken away from us during COVID, uh, our lovely government here was was putting money into the museums, which of which I'm a trustee in Liverpool Museums, but they're also putting up posters going, she may be a ballet dancer today, but she could be a, an accountant next year. It's like yeah, don't waste your time on art, the kids. It's a it's a total waste of time and energy and money. Well, you know what? In difficult times, they might not want to spend money on art, but actually you need to feed your tummy and your soul, especially in hard times. So it's a call to arms for the power of art. That's what it's about. And while the beats are there, lyrically, it's quite scathing. The angry young man has morphed into the angry older man. Kleptocracy is very angry in the lyric, but very kind and very happy in the, in, in the music. Well, you know what? I mean, accidentally, we or well, accidentally, we unconsciously ended up having this style where even when we're trying to serve up some medicine, we put a lot of sugar on it. You know? 
And yeah, kleptocracy. I was fumingly angry <clears throat> about certain narcissists who have hijacked democracies. And you don't need me to name them, mm. but they still haven't gone away. We're still suffering at their hands. And I was also angry about Putin. And I was angry about Jamal Khashoggi in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, everybody was wringing their hands. Going, oh, shocking, terrible, terrible. Right. And they went, right, as the dust settled. Right. How many tanks would you like to buy? Can we sell you some jet fighters? Uh, it's, you know, it's I, I just I'm, politicians have always done dodgy deals in dark rooms. And there's always money gone under the table. It's in broad daylight now, and the money's on top of the table. It's making me so angry. So yeah, I'm. Uh, but it's got a cracking melody. That song. <laughs> And that might be a good tee-up for the force of nature that is Brian Big Brother Dowling and Arthur Dancing with the Stars Garulian. The couple have written a book called Modern Family, Births, Marriages, Deaths and Everything in Between. This is how they met. Brace yourself. Ah! <laughs> I just got that there now. Oh my God, just give me goosebumps. Well, this is not. my story because we're always fighting about this story. Oh, oh, I was actually in the club 27th of December 2002. In the club, you're in a bar in I London. I was in the bar, actually, very famous bar bar. Shadow Lounge, uh, Shadow Lounge. Yes, I was there actually. I just broke up with someone that day. You know, I was like, you know, I just arrived to UK. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. Let, let's just break up. And he was upset. He left. And I was on my own. I couldn't even speak English. And and then I was going home and this song came on. And this song came on. And as a dancer, it was an anthem. I was like, I'm going to go on the dance floor. I don't care. You know, as, as you know me, like I'm out there. I'm loud. I don't care about who's watching me. I'm going to go on the dance floor and I'm going to have fun. Live my life. And I was on the dance floor dancing, you know, like no care in the world. And then I see this man. Enter stage left. <laughs> Actually, stunning young Irishman. <laughs> reality TV sensation. Yeah, yeah you Skinny. <laughs> gorgeous. Actually, 22 yeah, years were. ago. But at the time, I didn't even I see him. I saw another guy, his that, best friend's brother, who looked like yes, Abercrombie and blonde, Fitch Mode. I was like, guy. oh my God, you're hot. He's so, straight, by the way, so yeah, that was a no-go. <laughs> so he was left with me. And then I was like to oh my God. bestie, Simon, who was here last night for the book launch. Yeah. And I was like, that guy, you know, is really attractive. And Simon said, go on, you know, have a try, walk up. And I walked up, I was like, hi, hello. The music was loud. Mm. And he was like, and I went, oh. I was like, and then I went back, so I'm like, he can't speak a word of English. That's definitely not happening. And Simon so was like, shallow. do you care? And I thought, do you know what, tonight, I don't Care. Throw caution to the wind. Oh, and I did. But you were such a bad flirt because he's coming to I me know, trying yeah. to flirt. My I was flirt like, game's dreadful. Don't embarrass yourself. Smearing off ice. Yeah. Oh my straw. god. With a straw. I mean, come on. Oh. So 2002. This is 21 years on. Yeah. Yes. Who out of a straw? There it all began. But their lives have not been without challenge. Arthur talked about being forced to leave his native Armenia. 
obviously I was like a little boy, yes. like I was 12, going to 13. I didn't realize what much was happening. I seen the horror. I was seeing the horror. But I think the straw was like, we have to leave the country. I was doing a music class. I was doing guitar and I was um, in a music school. And one of my friends came out with me and I said, guys, wait a minute. I fought my guitar. I'm going to go back to get my guitar. Why don't you go and I'll join you? And when I was coming out, one of my friends get picked up, put in a van to go to the war. Uh -huh. And I hid myself straight away. And when I hid myself, I went back home shaking. And I said that to my parents, that was the click that said, we have to live here because we will never survive here. That's it. We will be, we'll be dead. Because that was your future. You were going to be that in the was, army. Oh, it doesn't matter how old you were. Once you pass 10 years old, they give you the gun. Here we go. Let's go. Doesn't matter. You have to save your country. All right. And for Brian, yes, we had Big Brother, massive win. But also, he was the first openly gay presenter on children's television. You were a trailblazer. I got a lot of that when I was on SMTV Live. There was no, bearing in mind, there was no social media. People had to write you letters. Mm. I was constantly getting letters from people that had come out after the show or had the confidence to sit down and tell their families, I'm just like Brian, yeah. I'm gay. And when I was doing that and, you know, gay, and even with the dance with Kai on Strictly, when Ireland had done it before England or anyone had done it, it's only looking back now at 45 that I'm able to go... God, how did I not buckle under the pressure of that? At 23 years old, doing SMTV Live was the first openly gay man that's ever done kids' telly. Well, the thing was, I didn't even think about it. I just did mm -hmm. it. And I'm glad that now I look back and I go, actually, well, it's, the back has but allowed us to cut the book to give ourselves a tap in the back and go, well done. But when you think about it, I know that, 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 that there are stories well documented now. People obviously stayed in the closet because yes. they were fearful. Fearful. Doing children's television. Yes. That if it was revealed they were gay, that they'd lose their jobs. Of course, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I was the first one, but I, I think there was still fear there. And I think that stemmed from the fact they know you're okay. gay. They don't need to see you being gay. Brian and Arthur with Ray. Of course, now they have a daughter, the little baby Blake, so no more clubbing for them. Free time just for the child free. Well, that was the scrap on Twitter this week. One of them anyway. The notion that those without kids should be off, fully utilising all of their free time, be it whittling spoons, ticking up the harp or just a spontaneous international jet setting. Sun reporter Nicola Barden does not have children, nor, however, is she idling around with oodles of spare time. Uh, look, I'm in my 30s, hobbies. I'm like, what are you talking about, hobbies? <laughs> uh, hobbies, unless it's listening to a podcast or watching Netflix, I'm just happy to sit on the couch at the end of the day. So, <laughs> yeah. You I, see, I, I actually I think, think you've, put, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's actually bitterness. Nicola, yeah. because that idea of just sort of, you know, why should I fill my free time? I can actually just sit down on the couch and do nothing if I want to do nothing. You know, th I think what bitterness? Who's bitter? bitterness on, on behalf of a parents who can no longer do that, who are saying, no, you should be busy too. Oh, no, oh, you know, I think on. it is. I, I, I know I, I do. I think it no. is. I think that you, you sort of because when, when it's gone and you can't do it, I think you sort of feel a bit bitter about the people who can. Who are you to say that parents are bitter? I, me, I'm bitter. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm speaking on behalf of myself as a parent. Oh, bitter and resentful, just the way we like it. Back in a bit. Welcome back. In Mayo, a lobster. And not just any lobster, of course not. An albino lobster, a rare creature. And if that wasn't enough, this one is now turning blue. On the News at One, Kevin Garvin from the Ackle Experience Aquarium. 
Around 2017, um, near the village of Dua, um, there was a beach that um, disappeared for 30 years, but then uh, reappeared. Around that same time, one of the local fishermen here in Achill, uh, by the name of Charlie O'Malley, he caught this uh, very unusual lobster. Uh, he rang us up and he says he caught something very, very odd, something that they don't catch too often. Um, it was a rare white lobster. So we took him into our possession and we've had him here in our aquarium ever since. But you've in recent times begun to notice some changes. Absolutely. So the lobster um, that came into us, uh, we named him Charlie after Charlie O'Malley. Um, he was a rare albino lobster. So he was one in 100 million. However, in the past three years, maybe three to four years, he's slowly gone through a very odd change. He's starting to slowly turn blue. Um, that started after three years when he molted. So the molting process, essentially, a lobster will take off their shell in order to grow because they have a hard outer exoskeleton. Um, but every time he's done it, the, the shell has become bluer and bluer. And do you understand why this is happening? Well, it is Halloween. Maybe the crustaceans, a bit of dress up. Sorry, <clears throat> back to the science. Um, generally, a lobster should be a dark black or a dark navy colour. Um, the reason they can come in a variety of different colours, or when, when it does happen, it's quite rare, is a rare genetic mutation in their cells. So sometimes they underproduce proteins that they're eating in their diet. That can give you orange lobsters, which are one in 30 million. Um, in his case, he wasn't producing anything at all. Blue lobsters tend to be one in 2 million and overproduce proteins. So somewhere along the down, somewhere down the line, he's starting to develop pigment. We're not too sure about the process. We think it could be due to his diet or his age or perhaps other environmental circumstances. But at the moment, um, it's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, so it's extremely rare to be either a, 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 a white or, or a blue lobster. Um, and perhaps I mean, one of the explanations for that is particularly for the albino uh, lobster, um, it doesn't have the camouflage. Isn't that right? It's much more, it's much more vulnerable to predators. Absolutely right. Um, lobsters, because of their darker colour, they can hide in darker environments so they don't get predated on. Um, when you're an albino lobster where you're completely white, you don't have that same protection. So you stick out more easily um, in darker environments. So one of the reasons they're quite rare is not just the rarity of the mutation itself, but from predators um, actively predating um, our lobsters, um, our, those lobsters. Mm. So they, their numbers are quite reduced because of that. So to find one is is a very uh, unique event. And staying in Mayo for unique events, where else? Alien life forms, maybe. And when we do turn our gaze to the night sky, well, it can be quite wonderful. The, the night lights from Dublin just completely black out the, the sky. If you go to somewhere like Mayo, where they've got the, the dark uh, the dark sky program, where they protect the night sky, you a friend of mine, when she first saw it, she's an astrophysicist. Uh, she she broke down in tears. It's just it's, it's absolutely amazing. You can see you can see the uh, disc of the Milky Way on a clear night. Wow, it is something yeah, to exactly. behold, isn't it? Yeah, it is mm-hmm. for sure. She wouldn't be the first person to break down in tears in Mayo. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Steady, but quite rightly championing Wild Nefen National Park with Trinity astrophysicist Owen Johnson, and he is doing PhD research into extraterrestrials. Doodly, 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 doodly. Oh, I'd say he hates that. Yeah, so we're actually doing something really cool, which uh, has never been done in Ireland and actually hasn't. This type of survey has never done, been done kind of worldwide before. Is We're using um, this world-class telescope that we got built in Burr and one in Sweden, and we're using it to survey. Um, we surveyed 1.6 million stars, and we were looking for remnants of uh, technology uh, out there in the universe. Wow. Explain the telescope to me, and how does it differ to what was done previously when looking for uh, extraterrestrial life? 
the telescope in Burr is kind of different to your conventional telescope. It's a, it operates at radio frequencies, and <clears throat> more spe uh, specifically, it operates at lower radio frequencies, so from um, kind of more uh, radio stations brought, uh, brought, uh, transmit at. So um, in the case of uh, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence in the past, it was done at much higher frequencies, especially uh, in the States. So this is the first time we've ever looked at this frequency range um, in this type of search. Really? Anywhere in the world? Any, anywhere in the world. This is the first time. Wow. And what have you found? So we found, unfortunately, no uh, no uh, alien life or else you probably ah, would have heard that. come on, now, for God's <laughs> I sake. I know, I know. And nothing. Nothing, nothing. But the, <laughs> the cool thing about this uh, this survey is we pushed these telescopes to their absolute breaking point. So um, if there's any cool exotic stars out there, we get to see them too. So not only are we looking for remnants of other civilizations, um, we're also looking for like these exotic exotic stars out there as well. Are you looking for life like human life or could it be something else? Because we only have one, uh, like the sample size for life is, is pretty small. We only have ourselves to study. We actually were pretty agnostic in, in, in the type of life we look for. So we just assume that life can maybe go in all different types of environments. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't really throw out any stars because they're not similar to Earth. Because I thought we were in the sweet spot in the, the environment or the atmosphere for yeah, so life we're in, to we're exist. in the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, which is which is really which is really handy for us. It means that uh, civilization can thrive here. But uh, but the the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone is known changes from star to star, and it depends on how hot the star is and, and what kind of star that you're orbiting. So it changes based on on, on the solar like the system that you're in. Meanwhile, back here on Earth, there was a lot about these creatures on the airwaves this week. <laughs> Yep, the good old growl or the yapping. Doggies, doggies everywhere. And our relationship with them, well, it's based on chasing for food. Both us and them. We've had dogs with us as uh, humans for tens of thousands of years, back to the time when we were hunter-gatherers. So when you think about the way you see wolves, which are kind of a, a relation of dogs, you see them hunting in the wild. They hunt in packs and... Uh, they can effectively wear out large prey by running after them. And that's what we used to do before we learned how to farm. We used to run after things, hit it with sticks, eventually slow it down, beat it up, eat it. And uh, the only difference is that we had bigger brains, so we learned how to, uh, to adapt and to move on, to cook the meat and to farm. But it made a lot of sense for us to hunt with, with uh, those, um, those wolves, those, those canids, uh, because effectively would, we would have been competing for food at, at the same time. And so it made sense to join forces and to use the, the wolf to, to help the human hunt and vice versa. And over time, they became domesticated. They became man's best friend. And so there are records going back tens of thousands of years. Indeed, there's a, a, there's a, I suppose, a burial record that's 14,000 years old that shows humans being buried with dogs, which suggests at that point they were actually pets rather than, you know, just, just some sort of wild animal that hung around. Shane Bergen from UCD with Colm and Yes Dogs. Creatures that do our bidding fetch. We are their master and commander, which is exactly what they want us to think. How did dogs reel us in? Because I, I do remember reading a, a piece once that some dogs' abilities to change their facial expressions made humans look at them and think that they understood us better and as a result it helped develop the relationship. Is there any evidence for that? <laughs> there is, yeah. But we don't fully understand the goings-on of our, our, our dogs and what goes on in their, in their heads. But we, we've, we've co-evolved so that they know that uh, um, if they behave in certain ways, we'll respond. We'll give them the treat. We'll take them on the walk. 
uh, we'll, we'll look after them. We'll give them the sort of the social company that they really want as pack animals. And so they've learned to figure out how to manipulate us, you could say. Or right, that's probably how they got into the cave in the first place. Isn't <laughs> it, it probably Standing is. at the entrance, looking Whining. all mournful, <laughs> looking at us with those eyes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they probably did in fairness. And so when you, when you think of the characteristics of dogs, that kind of, you know, the, the head tilt when you're talking to them, um, indeed the wagging of the tail or just the excitement to see you come home. All of these things are done because they know that when they behave like that, we respond in a way that, that makes them feel good. And what is that, yeah, what now, head tilt that they do? The head tilt is incredible. We don't fully understand the nature of the head tilt, but it's thought that the dog may actually be using a good ear uh, when listening uh, right. to you. So when you think about what uh, what a dog is experiencing when we're ch- chatting away, they don't understand language, but they will, uh, most dogs understand a certain number of words, most notably their name. So if you're talking away and then all of a sudden you look at the dog and you make eye contact with it and you use a word like its name or maybe something that they might uh, know, like walk or something, they'll look at you that you, you, they now are staring at you thinking, oh, there's something for me. Um, and, you know, effectively, I have your full attention. Oh my, so those tricks and tasks, they seem so eager and happy to do. Mind games. With Ray, Sinead Neulachon went out and found the dogs fetching sticks, panting, slobbering and generally being pathetic people pleasers. Oh yes, I have a dog, Jake. He's a Jack Russell. He's um, a rescue and he likes to sing along with us. If we start singing a song, he, he holds a log and he's... Yeah, <laughs> that's a very cool trick. Yes, it is. Yeah, annoying at times when you're trying to sing and he comes in and starts joining you. You know, <laughs> when the radio's on. He collected a post every morning for me. Once he heard a knock on the door, he thought it was for himself. Did he put it in his gob? Oh yeah, yeah. He carried it into me. Oh, yeah, the whole the whole shebang. <laughs> what was his name? Benji, Jack Russell. They're the best dogs to have. <laughs> Trained the uh, budgie. Looking for him, couldn't find him. And uh, tomorrow night he was in the hall. The front door was wide open. And a whistle, and he walked back in and he got back into his cage. His mother actually died, still a bit young, so he used to feed him himself, you know, and he got used to me then. And he knew your voice? He didn't know my voice. I just go, <laughs> he whistled back to me, you know. That's Martin yeah, yeah. and his budgie. He didn't name his budgie. Do you know what? He told me, um, but I wasn't recording, and he named his budgie Last Christmas. And what did he call him? Last Christmas was the title of it. That's his name. I know, I know. (laughs) Sorry, I'm very slow today. Grown. But birds featured in the winning story for the RTE short story competition announced last night on the arena special at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. The story was Mr Who by John O'Donnell, read by Emmett Farrell. We stood outside the last garage on the line. The door was covered in bright, foamy graffiti. Mam says it's called lock-up lane because everyone who has one is in prison. Meula force board, said Yaz, holding out his hand. I gave him the tenor from Mam's purse. Yaz fiddled with the padlock, slid the door up and we stepped in. So much stuff. A pair of boxing gloves, a busted sofa, a crossbow, a brassy tube. Picture frames with no pictures in them. Who owns all this? asked Scar. Yaz answered, but we couldn't hear him properly. Mr. Who? said Scar. And that's when I saw him. He was perched on a high shelf. 
tawny rage of feathers glaring down at us from inside his world of glass. The neat, tucked beak, ears like horns, his eyes blazing blood orange and the terrible curved talons that could pierce a rabbit's flesh, that could rip the heart out of a young lamb. Straight away I knew that I would never see anything more beautiful or more deadly. I lifted him down carefully and brushed the dust off his glass dome. I'll look after you now, Mr Who, I said. Mr Who, the winner of this year's RTE short story competition. Now, for the weekend that's in it. Mm Mm-hmm, down doggy. And then this. Sound of ghosts walking, according to the sound effects machine. And then finally... Three, three apples! Ah, 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 ah. I love it! Isn't that fun? Oh, the wrong count. But with Oliver, Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew, Dacre. The story of Dracula and how he comes to write it. I mean, vampires are kind of... In literature, a fair bit around this time anyway, Sheridan Le Well, yeah, Sheridan Le had, had written early. Carmella about 26 years before... Um, John Polidari, who wrote The Vampire, and J. Malcolm Reimer. Varney the Vampire. So Bram didn't invent them in literature, but he really packaged it very mm-hmm. well. And that's the way I explained it, because he took a real myth, and I say real myth, which is a little oxymoron, yeah. but a myth had been floating around the world, particularly in the 1700s, of people misdiagnosing people who were buried during diseases and things and thinking without understanding germ theory that these creatures who were simply spreading germs and then being buried, were actually vampires. And when graves were exhumed to stop the spread of this vampirism, they saw these bloated bodies, blood coming out of their mouths, and realized they must really be coming out and sucking the blood of the living. So they'd stake them to the ground, cut their heads off, anything to keep these bodies in the ground. And Bram capitalized on that because he found a book by a Scottish writer, Emily Gerrard, who wrote all about Transylvanian superstitions with the vampire, the Nosferatu, the Strigoi, how to kill them with staking and cutting off the head. So he took existing knowledge in factual forms and put it into his fictional book and brought Dracula to the the shores of England. And back into the archives, Dacre has gone to piece together just how Bram Stoker created his vampire. If you look there in the middle of the page, you'll see Mm. one of the names next to Count crossed out. So what I've been able to figure out is he was naming his first attempt of a vampire as Count Vampire, which is Austrian for a vampire. Right. Probably following in the footsteps of Le Fanu, who set Carmilla in Austria. But then he went to Whitby, because there's no date on this page. He Mm. went to Whitby in 1890 and he found a book by William Wilkinson, where it mentions Dracula means devil. And I think it's just after that, very early in the process, that he crossed out Vampire and put in Dracula. <laughs> Any excuse. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Have yourself a spooktacular weekend. Talk to you next week. Heard strange noises coming from a house on the hill. So I crept up to the window and looked over the sill. Heart almost stopped, I nearly died of fright. By the dim candlelight, I saw the strangest sight. There was Frankenstein.